Hey, I'm Mitchell Holmes, and I am the Children's Director at our Waterford location. Thank you so much for checking out this message. We're glad you're here, and we would love to get connected with you and your family. One easy way that you can do that is by texting the word River Connect to 97000. That's River Connect, all one word, to 97000. You can also visit our website at theriverchurch.cc to learn more about us and some upcoming events. Lastly, if you'd like to give to the River Church today, you can text the amount that you'd like to give to 84321, or you can head to our website and click on the giving tab at the top of the page. Thanks again for joining us. We hope you enjoy today's message. So many of you know I'm a big movie guy. I like movies. I love watching movies. Um, I've shared some of my favorite movies before. But in terms of genres, some of my favorite movies to watch are movies like thrillers, right? Movies that have some sort of crazy plot twist where you're waiting and you're waiting to see what crazy thing happens, right? And and if you got any good thriller movies or movies with great twists, suggest them to me. I'd love to hear them because I love watching those type of movies. But one of my favorite things to do is is after watching a movie with a crazy twist, with something happening that I didn't expect, or just, you know, being completely, uh, you know, hit out of left field uh, by something, is I love to go back later and watch that movie again. And some of you are like, isn't the best part of the movie, like, the twist, right? You're watching to see what the twist is. And part of it is yes, but I love going back and watching those movies with a twist, again, because... I love to see the different clues that the movie gives you uh, throughout the course of the movie. The things that you missed, right? The things that were maybe hinting to what was happening. Or now that you know what the end result is, you can go back and you can see, oh, look, this character is doing that now. Or there's something in the works that I missed before because I just didn't know. I didn't know to be looking for it. And You know, my wife often gets very frustrated when she watches thriller movies with me now because I've gone back and I've watched and I've seen so many clues that I pick up on clues a lot faster when we watch movies. And she's like, shh, you know, stop saying things. I don't need to know that stuff. I just want to know what's coming and I want to to experience it for myself, right? But I love that idea of clues so that I can know what to expect, right? What to expect. What is coming? And when you look at the whole of the Old Testament, when you look at the whole of Scripture in general, right, they, uh, the Old Testament people, the people who were living during that time, they were living one of the greatest thrillers of all time, right? There was a great twist that was about to come their way, and throughout the Old Testament as they were living and as things were being recorded and as the writers were writing the Old Testament, they were getting these clues about what is to come. And there's some people throughout the Old Testament, like the prophets and like the judges or like different people who God had given some great wisdom, saw what was coming. They had figured it out beforehand, but a vast majority of people were left oblivious to the clues. And so what we're going to be doing over the next couple weeks leading up to, uh, leading up to Christmas and, and the time where he who is expected comes, we are going to be looking at the different names of our Savior. And the names of our Savior are laid out throughout the Old Testament as they were naming this person to come. 
this Savior to come, and how so many people missed it because they didn't know his name. They didn't know his role. But before we jump in, let's pray together. If you would, bow your heads. Lord, Lord, we pray this morning, and we pray that you give us understanding. We pray that as we look at Scripture, you would help us to see what you have for us this morning. Lord, in that we would understand, your Holy Spirit would give us understanding. Lord, we love you. In your precious and holy name, Jesus' name, amen. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. And so we're, we're in this series, or we're jumping into this series this morning called Expecting. And I love, I don't know who came up with the name Expecting, but it is a great name. I will give them props when I figure it out, whoever it was. Um, but it, I love that term Expecting because, or this name Expecting because really it has a bunch of different meanings, right? It's a great play on Mary being pregnant and she is expecting. But then it's a talk, it also has this secondary role of talking about expecting a Savior. A Savior is coming. Some sort of solution is coming to the spiritual problem that the world had. And so, in order to understand truly what this series is and what we're looking at when we're actually going to be talking about a passage in Isaiah, we really need to understand the truth of what the Old Testament was expecting, right? Why there was this expectation or why throughout the Old Testament there were these things going on. We need to look at the picture of what's going on. And so in Genesis 1, right, we have creation, we have the creation of the world where God, he creates all things and they're good. And then we have the creation of humanity. And then uh, humanity walks with God in the garden, right? And they're in this perfect relationship with God where God is communing with them and he's with them. And they're walking with them and they have this, this intimate relationship. They know God well, right? And there's this, there's this perfect picture of what it should be, what it always should be. And then what happens? Sin, right? God gives them an instruction to obey, right? Don't eat from this tree. You can eat from any other tree. Just don't eat from this one. And what do they do naturally? They eat from that tree. They eat from that tree and they sin. They disobey God. And what was natural to them, right, walking in the garden with God now there is this separation because their sin has separated them. Their disobedience has caused repercussions and that repercussion or that consequence is separation. And what we see in Genesis 3.15 or Genesis 3 is God laying out the consequences for what has happened because of sin, right? Or he lays out what will happen because of sin. And so he, he curses, and he places curses on humanity, but he also places a curse on the serpent, who we know to be the devil, right? Who tempts, at, or tempts Eve into eating and partaking of the forbidden uh, fruit of the tree. And in Genesis 3.15, we see a piece of this curse. And really in Genesis 3.15, we see the layout for the whole of the Old Testament. 
It says this, Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And you may look and you're like, whoa, that, what, what does that have to do with anything, right? And so this idea of enmity, right, is, is, is like anger or, or there's a, this division, there's this strife, there's a fight, right? There's a fight between the, the, uh, the woman and the serpent because he tricked her. And then he says, but I will also put that enmity between your children where they will be fighting your offspring. And he says, he shall bruise your head talking about the offspring of the woman, shall bruise the serpent's head, and you shall bruise his heel. And the idea there is he will crush you, he will destroy your head, and you will wound him. And this is that very first picture of a Savior to come, of one man who will destroy evil, destroy Satan, conquer Satan, and he will do so by taking a wound upon himself. And, you know, if you're really looking for a good Scrabble word, the, in the religious, uh, you know, the, the theological section, they call this the proto-evangelium, right? That's a, that's a big old word. Proto-evangelium. What it means is this is the first gospel. It's really a conjunction of two words, first gospel, which is the first good news. This is the very first picture of the gospel in Scripture. You may look at me and say, wow, I never knew that. Right? I never knew that. All the way even back in Genesis, there is a picture. And truthfully, it continues. There is a picture, there's pictures throughout the whole of the Old Testament that are pointing forward. Hey, look, there's something to come. Hey, look, you should have this expectation. And with the rest of the story is laid out some very interesting expectations and some very interesting needs that we have. And throughout the story of the nation of Israel and God's people, right, there are different things that happen that are designed to prepare us for the Savior that we need. Right? If you look to the, the, uh, the Old Testament, you look to the Ten Commandments. When the Ten Commandments come, the picture of the Ten Commandments is supposed to show us the depth of our sin, right? A lot of people use that as like, oh, these are the things that we should and shouldn't do, which is true. But truthfully, God knew that we would never be able to live up to even just the Ten Commandments. But then you go even further, right? And you get the Levitical law that was given to the Jewish people for them to keep and for them to follow. And that is even more complex and more intricate and, and tackles more things. And they were never supposed to be able to fully follow it. They're supposed to strive after it. But throughout Scripture, in Romans, it talks about this being a picture. It was designed to show us the depth of our sin. How far separated we were from God. And then you continue and you look at the Old Testament uh, sacrificial system, right? Where people would have to bring animals to slaughter so that their sins could be cleansed. And so that they could be forgiven of sin, and, right? And their sins were imparted to these animals and their animals were slain because sin, the wages of sin, is death. And... This was meant to be this temporary solution, but it was meant to be a picture of what was to come. 
And truthfully, the whole of the Old Testament is pointing forward to this permanent solution that was coming, right? They had some temporary solution to some eternal problems, and they needed an eternal, a permanent solution. And throughout this time, there is talked about this person, right? This offspring of Eve that will come and will destroy evil and destroy Satan, a savior that God will send. And he's called the Messiah. And there are many different places where this Messiah is described and there's different prophecies about him. But we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 9. And in Isaiah chapter 9, he's writing specifically about this, this prophecy or he's writing about this Messiah that's coming and what his name will be. And what his titles will be. And a lot of times you can tell what someone's role is or what someone's job in a company is by their title. And we're going to be looking at the titles or the names that are given to the Messiah and what we should be expecting from this Savior to come. And it says this in Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to be in verse 6. It says this, For to us a child is born... To us, a son is given, and the government will shall be uh, uh, government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so we see that once again, there's this picture, right? The this child is born, this son is given. And he's given these names, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And so over the next couple weeks, we're going to be taking a look at these different titles of God or these different names for this Savior to come. Now, I'm going to give you a little bit of a spoiler alert. This child, this Savior to come, is Jesus Christ. The reason why we celebrate Christ's birth, we celebrate Christmas is because this child that was born in a manger in Bethlehem, he is the Messiah. These names apply to him. He is our Savior. He is our wonderful counselor. He is a mighty God. He is our everlasting Father. He is the Prince of Peace. That is who he is. And so we're going to be working our way through these titles, and we're going to look at what they mean for us as his followers. What they mean for us as we look to follow our Savior. As our Savior steps into our lives and he changes who we are, we should understand what his role is. And so first we're going to look at this title, Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful counselor. And when I, when I took to Google, because naturally, right, you got a question, you go to Google. I took to Google and I, and I just simply typed in the question, what is a counselor? And obviously, 
Uh, Google thought that I was in some deep emotional turmoil when I asked that question. So I get a bunch of ads like, call this number if you're in deep need of help. And I'm like, I'm just writing a sermon, guys. You can calm down, right? And, and so I, I go on there and I'm reading all these different things. And you, you move from the, the like, hey, are you intentionally to help to, hey, are you looking for a job? And I'm like, no, I am not looking for a job. I do not want, uh, you know, to be a full-time counselor. And, and so I just kind of like skim by all those, and I get to a site where it's talking about, you know, what is a counselor? What does a counselor even do? And it's interesting because throughout the, the number of sites that I went to, right, these are secular sites. They weren't even, they weren't Christian sites. They weren't sites who were talking about Jesus. They were just talking about counselors in general. There were kind of two main themes that I saw, two main roles of a counselor. And so we're going to look at those things because I believe they're actually very deeply rooted in who Jesus is and how Jesus relates to us. I think the world has taken from our once our wonderful counselor and they, they've tried to imitate that in their own ways. And so the, the first way is a counselor teaches, a counselor instructs, a, a counselor gives wisdom on how to tackle the circumstances or the instances that are in our lives, that are right before us. And you see this is all actually all the way true, all the way back into antiquity, right? Kings and queens, royals would have their court counselor, whoever would be on on their, you know, in their kind of higher up circle, they would have this counselor and they would go to them when they had deep questions or they had questions that they really couldn't decipher what the answer was and they would go to them and they would ask them they would seek their counsel and they, they would help them they would give them wisdom they would instruct them in some different things and throughout the course of scripture right in the old testament and the new the lord teaches us through his word he teaches us through the scriptures and in the Old Testament, this was understood, right? They would look to the law. They would look to uh, the, the first five books of the Bible, which were called the Pentateuch. They would look to those for instructions. They would look to those different things, and they would try to understand what the Word of God was telling them to do. They would look at the Levitical law, and they said, this is how God has told us to live. We have to follow His instructions on what that means in our lives. And as David is writing in Psalm 119, turn with me to Psalm 119. He's writing in Psalm 19, he's talking about how great the Word of God is, right? How great the thing, is, the thing that God has given us, His Word, is to us. And he says, the very laws and commandments, the ways that He's commanded us to obedience, this is great and I love it. And he says in Psalm 119, verse 105, he says, Your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. You've maybe heard that verse before, but you maybe have skimmed by it in your brain. Right? Think about really the imagery that he gives there. Right? This darkness all around this uh, inability to see what is in front of you. And the only light you have is God's word. Is the instruction that he's given you. 
and it lights your way. It shows you where you, you are standing, where your feet are. Maybe how far you are off the path. And then it shows you the path that is before you. And the way in which you should walk. This is a necessity. He says the word of God is a necessity. It teaches. It guides. It helps you understand where you are. The circumstances you are in. And then it helps you see where to go from that. And then turn with me to John chapter 1. And in John chapter 1, John is opening his account of the gospel. And he's, he's giving this picture of what or who has come. And he's, he's saying that the word of God, you think that it's just these words written down. And no, the word of God, the whole of it is this man, this Messiah, this Savior who is to come. And you see in John chapter 1, verse 1, he says, the word in, the, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he continues to expand upon that idea in John chapter 1. He's saying, yes, keep looking, keep looking, keep looking. And he goes down, and you look at verse 14, John 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Right? So there's picture. All right, look, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right? They start getting confused. They're like, wait, you're talking about like the Word as, as if it was a person. And then he continues to expand. And then he gets to verse 14, which is just the ultimate plot twist, reality in Scripture. And he says, and the Word became flesh. And what's more than that, it dwelt among us. The very thing that taught you and led you, the very thing that was a light on your path, he's here. He's here in the earth. What you've expected has come. And he's actually greater than you expected him to be because the word of God is now dwelling among us and he is glory and he is the son, right? The son that has come. And this, this word, who is Christ Jesus, is full of grace and truth. He didn't come to just beat us down. He didn't come to just be angry he came to give us grace and truth. Oh, what a wonderful counselor. He came to teach. And what's more than that, he came to show. Throughout the Gospels, as we look at the life of Jesus, he would teach something and then he would live that out. Or he would live something out and then he would teach how that should apply to us. He is our great example. As we sit in each of our circumstances, as we sit and we look and we try and figure out in the darkness of our world how we should live, He is the light that shows us where we're standing, a lamp unto my feet, and a light to the path that is before us. And we look at the gospel accounts and there's this 
plethora of teaching, right? That's why we can have fall series for the past three years that talk about the Sermon on the Mount, the very teachings that God or that Christ has given us. His role, the, very, the reason why Christ came was to teach us. And then, as he taught, to give us the ultimate example by going to the cross and dying and raising again so that we could have salvation only through him. And so, naturally, as we see his role is to teach, right? He comes as this wonderful counselor who is to give us wisdom and instruction in our lives. You know what that means? Our role is to learn. Our role is to seek understanding. Our role is to conform to his example, to follow, to hear what he has to say, or to read what he has for us in Scripture and live that out in our lives. To live differently because of his counsel in our lives. To take the truths that he's given us in Scripture and the grace that he has given us through his death and resurrection and live that out in our world. Follow the path laid before us. And oftentimes we resist this instruction. Right? We look and we look to the Bible and, and I hear this a lot. You know, the Bible, like, it's outdated, right? I, I'm glad that that stuff worked for them in that time or maybe it worked for you growing up, but that doesn't really work for me now, right? It may be true in some situations or maybe it's just like, you know, it's a good wisdom book, but it's not like the truth. My situation is different from the situations there. Jesus doesn't really understand exactly what I'm going through. And this leads us to the second role of a counselor. A counselor's job is to understand. A counselor's job is to see the lives of those who he is counseling and to understand so that he can guide us all the more. Turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. And I wanted to start off with this because I think that this is a really easy temptation, right? That mindset that I just talked about is a really easy temptation for us to have, right? If we, if we don't want to do something, we immediately say, you know, how could he understand? My circumstance is different. My circumstance is different. All those other circumstances, they may have turned out the same, but mine, mine is going to be the minority. How could Jesus understand what I'm going through? He lived thousands of years ago. His temptation wasn't the same. The worries he faced weren't the same. The fears that were in the lives of the people, the troubles of the people of the day, they weren't the same. How could he possibly understand? Life looks so different. And Solomon, as he's writing in Ecclesiastes, he gives this picture, right? Solomon, he was, he was trying to seek wisdom, and so he decided, I'm going to live as crazy and as reckless as I want to. I'm going to give in to every desire. And in that, he gave himself every excuse. And as he comes out of that period, and he's given this wisdom from God, he looks back, and he writes on the commonality that human ha humanity has throughout history. 
And he says this, Ecclesiastes 1, 9 and 10, verse 9 and 10. What has been is what will be. And what has been is what will be done. Or what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It is already, it, uh, it has been already in the ages before us. So what he's saying is, there is nothing new. Temptation, hardship, worry, anxiety, sickness, fear, sin, all these things, they have existed. And they will always exist. The only thing that's going to change is their clothes, the way they appear to you. Right? Lust has changed its clothes, but it's always been there. We can talk about every single thing. You worry, it's always been there. Maybe you've just changed what you've been worrying about. So we talked about last week. And we can go on and on with everything that you have struggled with. Yes, it may look different, but it is the same in your life. And when I look to Scripture and I look to Jesus, I look and I see someone who walked earth. And in Hebrews chapter 4, turn with me there, I find great comfort in this verse. And I would encourage you, Hebrews chapter 4, is, or chapter 4 verse 15, which we're going to read in a second, is a great verse to highlight. Because in times of hardship and hurt, it is a great encouragement. And in times of pride and seeking to go our own way, it is one that gives humility. It says this, Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet is without sin. He did not sin, but he walked earth. He walked in the fallenness of earth. He didn't sin, but he walked with sinners. He saw sin and its effects firsthand. He was tempted just like us in the wilderness. He attended friends' funerals and he watched people he cared about fall ill. He understands what it means to live in a fallen world. But a lot of times we think of our counselor or the one who gives us instruction through his word that he's writing these lofty instructions for us from his palace on the hill. But our counselor, the one who instructs us, he understands because he lived in the world which we live in. He is not some king in a faraway place he has a counselor who is down walking the streets beside us. He understands. He is our wonderful counselor. And so this week, as we close, I want to encourage you to look at this wonderful counselor and see him differently. See his roles 
in the face and, and respond to them with the role that we know we should have. Turn to your godly counselor, to your wonderful counselor. Turn to the word of God. I encourage you, if you're looking for a great place to start in looking for instructions or looking for understanding in Scripture, pick up the gospel, pick up the gospels and read them, right? Jesus instructs us on how to live. If you want a great gospel to start with, pick up the book of John this week. Start reading it. Look to the ways in which Jesus instructs us as our wonderful counselor. But I also want to encourage you as we close to, to do this. To go to him with the things that are bearing you down. To go to him with the things that you may not feel like he understands. Maybe something that you've been holding away from everyone in your life. Because you just don't think that they understand and no one understands you. Your wonderful counselor understands. He sees you and he loves you and he cares for you. He came to this world and he lived because he wants to instruct you and to teach you and to lead you because he loves you. Christ understands. He is our wonderful counselor. This week, I want to encourage you, embrace your wonderful counselor. Whether it's by learning from his instruction or turning to him with the things you think he, don't, he doesn't understand. Or maybe it's both. But the truth is, he is the wonderful counselor. The one that was expected. He is here. Let's pray.